0: <laughs> Good morning, everybody. <laughs> Welcome to The Surge. Uh, I am E. Reese. Uh, a friend of our surge, uh, a guy named Rusty Timberlake, he, he said to me one time, he said, he said E, your sense of humor, it, it's a bit of a high wire act, and it could go either way. He said, it, you know, it's kind of fun to watch you walk over the canyon, but you could fall. <laughs> He's like, it, that's not true, by the way. My sense of humor is directly on point at all times, so just so you know. All right, so my name is E. Reese. We're continuing our resurrection series. Um, I've got to just tell you personally, I have really enjoyed digging into this um, it's just been really interesting. Um, and and the thing, one of the things that I keep coming to is that the resurrection of Jesus, it's not just a miraculous event that happened in the past in history, but it is, in fact, the central event of Christian faith and the foundation of a Christian worldview. It's really at the center of these things, and it's really important. So uh, let, let's start here. Today we're talking about the empty grave. But uh, there was a, a piece uh, published by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle of Sherlock Holmes fame, Um, He published a series of shorts in 1894 called The Memoirs of Sherlock Holmes. He did it as a series of adventures. Um, And the adventure number one was The Silver Blaze. Now, The Silver Blaze was a racehorse um, in England at the time that had been stolen. And it had been stolen from a barn with a loft. There were stables there. There was a sleep. There was a dog. And in a great sequence between Holmes and Gregory, who was a Scotland Yard detective, um, Gregory says this. He says, is there any other point to which you wish to draw my attention, talking to Holmes? And Holmes says, ah, oh, yes, to the curious incident of the dog in the nighttime. And Gregory says, but the dog did nothing in the nighttime. And Holmes says, that was the curious incident. <laughs> it was the dog that didn't bark. And the clue, that was the central clue that led Holmes you know, from stone to stone to stone to actually solve the mystery, because the dog not barking let Holmes know that The person who stole the horse was someone that the dog knew, which greatly reduced the circle of uh, possible suspects. It was the dog that didn't bark. It was the first big clue to crack the case. So today we're talking about the empty tomb, and we're actually going to have a few things of dogs not barking here that are really... There's no other way to say it. They're amazing in their absence. And they lead us to uh, something that uh, that actually leads us to some inescapable conclusions about the resurrection. Um, and that it historically happened. So let's take a look at the gospel account. So this is a little bit long, and I'm actually going to read this a couple of times just because it's so beautiful, and I just just want to read it. Okay, so here we go. This is from Matthew 27 leading into 28. So it says this. The next day, the one after preparation day, the chief priests and the Pharisees went to Pilate. Sir, they said, we remember that while he was still alive, that deceiver said, after three days, I will rise again. So give the order for the tomb to be made secure until the third day. Otherwise, his disciples may come and steal the body and tell the people that he has been raised from the dead. This last deception will be worse than the first. Take a guard, Pilate answered. Go make the tomb as secure as you know how. So they went and made the tomb secure by putting a seal on the stone and posting the guard. So after the Sabbath at dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. There was a violent earthquake. For an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and, going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning. And his clothes were white as snow. The guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. The angel said to the woman, Do not be afraid, for I know who you are looking for, Jesus, who was crucified. He is not here. He is risen, just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples, He is risen from the dead and is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Now I have told you. So the woman hurried away from the tomb, afraid, yet filled with joy, and they ran to tell his disciples, And suddenly Jesus met them. Greetings, he said. And they came to him, they clashed his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. There they will see me. So while the women were on their way, some of the guards went into the city and reported to the chief priests everything that had happened. When the chief priests had met with the elders and devised a plan, they gave the soldiers a large sum of money, telling them, you are to say his disciples came during the night and stole him away while we were asleep. If this report gets to the governor, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So the soldiers took the money and did as they were instructed. And this story has been widely circulated among the Jews to this day. Um, now, we'll, we'll dig into this in, in, in a bit, but I just want to, uh, I, I've done a lot of reading around this topic. And three of the books that I would like to recommend to you um, is N.T. Wright. is probably the most scholarly work. It's just a very long work about the resurrection, uh, the historicity of it. Digging into all of the, the scholarly possibilities, and then talking about what that means for us. Um, the second one is the one that I want to focus on today. It's a bygame named Frank Morrison, and actually Greg re- re- recommended this book to us. This is a brilliant book. This is uh, Frank Morrison is one of the many guys who, through history, has said, "You know what? I don't believe this. I don't believe this Jesus thing. I don't believe this resurrection thing. I'm going to disprove it once and for all, and just put this to bed." And as he was looking to disprove it, he looked at all the evidence. He looked at everything. He became a Christian and then wrote a book in favor of the resurrection and why it actually happened. But he's writing in around the turn of the century, but he's very much in the Sherlock Holmes vein. of He's kind of a natural science guy. He's very interested in kind of the investigative mindset, and it almost reads like Holmes doing an investigation of the resurrection. It's just a brilliant book, and he does a lot of really, really cool things in it. It's fun, it's fun to read. Um, the third one is A Case for the Resurrection by a guy named Gary Habermas. He wrote that with a doctor named Michael Lacona. And, and there's just some terrific uh, historical and biblical scholarship here, and I'm borrowing heavily from all, all of these guys. So a lot of what I'm doing is not original. Uh, some of it is, but not, not a lot. Um, choking on the Fish was completely original. That was not done by Frank Morrison first. Okay, so what is fascinating, what is absolutely fascinating to me is as I look at everything, nobody, literally nobody, is saying that the tomb wasn't empty. Nobody. Everybody's saying that the tomb was empty, right? Because if Jesus was still in a tomb, the Jews or the Romans or Richard Dawkins today could just point to the tomb, open it up, produce a body, and we're done. But something happened at the tomb. Something happened. So obviously, here we're at, we're here, we're at the surge. We're at a Christian church. We believe that scripture is accurate, that Jesus rose from the dead, as the angels <laughs> indicated. But we also believe, we also believe, and we really do, that the truth will stand up to scrutiny, and that God is not afraid of honest questions. So here are all the options I can think of. I'm just going to run through a bunch of stuff, and let's look at things with the help of Scripture and with you know sweet reason at our at our aid, and let's uh, help the research of the guys I mentioned before and also the delicious interwebs. So uh, let me just set the stage quickly. So the nature of the tomb, uh, Jewish tombs in in this area, particularly for uh, guys like Joseph or Arimathea who's a little richer, they actually were a bigger thing, and they would actually be used for families normally. So. You would have an entrance to the tomb, which would be sealed by a big stone that would roll in front of it, or it would be like almost like a cork stopper that would be put into it. But then there would be like a little, almost like a lobby. You'd go into the tomb, and there'd be a little area that you could actually go in and stand in, and you could prepare the body, you could do stuff, and then there would be several places to put family members to rest kind of inside the tomb. So it would almost have two or three pieces there's the entryway, there's this inside of the tomb, and then there'd be a place where the body was actually laid to rest. Now, the stone. Regardless of what stone, you have these things weigh several hundred pounds to several thousand pounds, depending on the type of tomb it is, but it would require several people to to move. And what we believe, what a lot of people believe about the tomb of Joseph and Arimathea, because they talk about the the stone rolling away and it being a big deal that the stone was rolled away, um, it would be a a, a round stone set in a groove that was at a little bit of an incline. So it would be easy to get the stone onto the tomb, really hard to get it off, off of the tomb. Okay, so the other thing that we know is that Jesus was prepared for burial in a hurry. Because remember, when he was, he was crucified on a Friday, and at sundown Friday night begins the Sabbath. And they, they talk about this in the Gospel accounts. So Joseph and Nicodemus were preparing the body. They were in a rush. They wrapped him. They prepared myrrh and aloe. Um, they did these things. They wrapped him in linen cloths. And they put him in the tomb, but they did that in a bit of a hurry. Okay. So from there, the Jewish leaders, as we read in, in Matthew, they come to, they ask Pilate for help in securing the tomb. Now this was most likely a Roman guard, called a quaternion. It basically was four soldiers who stood watch for four hours. They had a very, you know, a six-foot square radius each. They weren't allowed to sit down. They weren't allowed to do anything. And you should know, if they fell asleep on duty, they were immediately executed. They were put to death. This was taken very seriously. And so what they would do is they would have four guys, and they normally would have at least another four guys as backup. So you had four guys, four hours, and they they would break and rest, and the other four guys would step in. And so you had you had a, a watch of Roman soldiers guarding the tomb. It may have been more than eight guys. We don't know. I mean, we, do, we don't know how many it is. Some scholars put it as many as 50. I'm not sure about that. But given that Pilate is you know, <laughs> sending Jesus to be executed in a, basically a riot with Barabbas, and, and there's a lot of people in the city that's a very volatile political situation, he may have sent more people to the tomb just to you know, keep his hands washed and keep him, out, <laughs> keep him out of trouble. All right, so what we do know is this. The Romans were not mall cops. They were some of the finest infantrymen in history. They marched 20 miles a day every day, whether they're in campaign or not, and they basically had 45 pounds of armor and another 45 pounds of kit. You know, their, their tent and their stuff and their food, they carried all this with them, and they marched 20 miles, and they were able to do that in about five hours. Now, listen, a normal person can go 20 miles in a day, but they can't do it in five hours. It's going to take a little longer. So these guys, were they were they were very in shape. They were very into endurance, and they weren't fooling around. When guarding, they weren't allowed to sit. They fell asleep. They were executed. They were serious. They were disciplined. They fought very, very well together. Um, if you watch the first scene from Gladiator, it's actually really accurate what they do. And like these guys were, these guys were a thing to, to be reckoned with. So the, the seal on the tomb was probably sealed with either wax or with clay. And again, the Roman seal was a thing that was very well known in the ancient world. If you broke a Roman seal for a crime scene or for some other reason, You were immediately executed. It was a capital offense. There's a Roman seal. You did not break the Roman seal. You did that at your peril. Okay. So this is the stage of the tomb from Friday evening to Sunday morning. You have the stone rolled in. Jesus is prepared in the tomb. You have the seal. You have a Roman guard. Okay. So here are the possibilities. Okay. This is the Ricky Gervais uh, slice. Jesus wasn't really dead. You know, he's like he's feeling much better. He's you know he's he's not he's almost dead. Okay. But but he was really dead. And and. This is almost. This is basically accepted as a historical fact at this point. John 19.33 says this. When they came to Jesus and they found he was already dead, they did not break his legs. Instead, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, and it brought a sudden flow of blood and water. Now, I don't want to be ghoulish, but crucifixion was a really awful way to die. And basically what happened was they would, they would put you up here after being heavily beaten and do these, thing, these things. They would basically put a nail through hands and wrists and feet and they would nail it to you across, they would put it across for it and they would drop it into place. And what happened was, is you would slowly suffocate. And so, <laughs> it was just, it's just an, an incredible form of torture. You couldn't breathe the way you were hanging. And so you would literally had to pull up with your arms on the nails and push up with your feet, take a breath, and then lower yourself back down. It's just awful. And eventually, you don't have the strength to do that anymore, and you suffocate. As, as this is happening... Basically, you're not able to breathe correctly, and you're slowly suffocating over time. Carbon dioxide builds up in the blood because you're not able to get enough air and oxygen correctly. This results in carbonic acid in the blood. The body responds instinctively, triggering the desire to breathe. So you're just, you're, it's literally your survival instinct that's keeping you alive. At the same time, your heart is beating faster, you're trying to breathe, but you have decreased oxygen because you can't breathe right. This causes damage to the tissues around the lungs and the heart. The capillaries... In this area, start leaking fluid, watery fluid from the blood into the surrounding tissue in the chest cavity. So, this results in a buildup of fluid around the heart called a pericardial effusion. And it causes a buildup of watery liquid around the lungs called a pleural effusion. So, the collapsing lungs, the failing heart, you're dehydrated because <laughs> what's left of your water is going into your chest cavity, your collapsing lungs, the inability to get sufficient oxygen that you essentially suffocate over time and look, the Romans knew how to kill people. I mean, they were very practical. You know, there are Roman harbors that they built that are still being used. There are Roman roads that are still being used in Europe today, and they knew how to kill people. And, and it seems to me, I'm, I'm not a doctor. I don't even play one on TV, but if, if you take a spear, it seems to me one of two things happens when you take a spear and you jam it into somebody's side. One of two things happens. One, one possibility is the guy goes, ah, and he tries to get away, or If he's already dead, he does nothing and stuff might come out of his side. Okay. And so it was just basically, it was a basic check to see if he was dead or not. So when the Romans got to the end of the day, they're like, okay, it's time to go home. They actually broke the legs of the two thieves so that they could not push up and breathe and so they would suffocate. When they came to Jesus, he was already dead. So they didn't break his legs. Instead, they did the check of the sphere, and when blood and water came out, it was the blood from blood, and it was the water from the chest cavity surrounding the distress that he had been in. And it was confirmation. Medical doctors talk, have written papers about this, and it was confirmation that he was, in fact, dead. So, um, you know, the Ricky Gervais thing is, you know, he, he, what, he, was, oh, he was in a bad way, but they put him in the tomb, and, but he felt better, and he popped out. No, he was dead. Um, second thing is is that just Joseph and Nicodemus never put the body in a tomb. Now, not very many people say this, and I'm not, I'm not buying, and the reason I'm not buying is because female soldier, female disciples were there, they watched him do it. Um, shortly after, the Romans moved the stone to close the tomb, they sealed it. When they were doing that, it would have been easy to see inside that there was, in fact, a body inside. They would know there was a body there. Uh, the third possibility that people still say, and I don't know why, I'll be honest, is that the Romans or the Jewish leaders took the body, and they hid the body. It's like, okay. Uh, okay, If if that happened, the question is, is when the early church started to come to fruition, the Jewish leaders and the Romans were both saying, cut it out, stop preaching Jesus. And if, if they had been able to produce a body, <laughs> right? You know, they're saying, Jesus rose from the dead and thousands of people became, became saved. And if the Romans had produced a body or the Jewish leaders had produced a body, then, you know, you're done. They, they could have killed the movement by producing a body at any time and they didn't do that. Okay. Uh, the fourth thing that people say is that other grave robbers took the body, uh, not with a Roman guard present. They didn't. Uh, the, the fifth thing is that the disciples stole the body. Okay. So, Morrison uh, the book that we talked about before he walks through this beautifully it's just really intricate account and it's just compelling so one of the things that Morrison does is he says consider the timeline here so thursday night thursday night jesus is arrested in gethsemane and it's late then there's a kangaroo court with a sanhedrin which takes some amount of time as this is happening peter denies jesus i don't even know who i don't know who you're talking about i don't i don't know that guy you <laughs> and then he go he goes away The disciples are scattered. They're literally hiding in the outlying area. They're behind locked doors. They don't know what's going on. The next day, things go from bad to worse. Jesus is beaten. He's mocked. We move into Friday. He's bounced between Pilate and Herod. He's sentenced to death, and he's actually executed. He's beaten again with a cat and nine tails. He's crucified horribly, and very publicly, he's executed on a cross. Joseph and Nicodemus bury him in a borrowed tomb Friday night. Um, So from sundown friday to sundown saturday would be the sabbath and probably out of play for most of the jews and from the, the the accounts nothing happens until sunday morning okay so on sunday morning early the tomb is empty this is attested by mary and the other women it's attested by peter and john who ran to the tomb it's attested by the angels who said he's not here anymore you know with looking like lightning and it's attested by the roman soldiers who said not here anymore as the angel came and like you know ah, we don't know what's going on but something we, this is above our pay grade and it's attested by the Jewish leaders who believed the Roman soldiers when they said this. So, consider this. This is what Morrison says, and this is awesome. If the disciples cooked up a scheme to steal the body, it would have had to work like this. <laughs> okay? Within 24 hours of Jesus being executed, someone among the disciples stops being freaked out that they're about to be arrested and executed right alongside him, and they say, no, we should, we should stage a, a resurrection. We should, we should perform a heist. They would have had to plan convince several of the others to go along with the plan, and then from, you know, Saturday, between Saturday night and dawn on Sunday morning, in the middle of the night, they would have to go to the tomb, overcome Roman soldiers, which, okay, then, you know, it, it, it's a group of fishermen, okay, would have to overcome Roman soldiers, with tax guys, a former uh, follower of John the Baptist, They go to the tomb to overcome Roman soldiers in such a way as to make the soldiers make up a story about divine intervention and not just a bunch of guys got the best of us. They surprised us. Like, no. Then they broke the Roman seal. They roll the stone away, which would use levers and tools and implements of destruction. They go into the tomb. Then they unwrap Jesus from the linen garments. They don't just take the body, but they unwrap the linen linen garments and leave the garments there, (laughs) and then they take the body out during the Feast of Unleavened Bread. They're walking through Jerusalem with a body with Tens of thousands of people in the city, around the city, completely unnoticed, and then they disposed of the body completely. Then they staged a dozen or so appearances of Jesus that convinced the larger circle. Okay. Then they waited for a few weeks. Then they publicly proclaimed that Jesus was risen in Jerusalem, and in support of a heist that they knew to be a fraud, they gave up their property. They were arrested. They were beaten. They were thrown in prison. They were eventually martyred without any of them, without a single one of them cracking under the pressure or going, no, no, we made it up. None of them said this. Listen, this just doesn't seem reasonable to me. It, it doesn't fit in any way. It does, it's a long way to go to find out that the store is closed. So the questions I have are, are this. So do I really, do I, let me talk about me. Do I really buy the idea that Peter and John went from scattered, denying that they even know him, fully in hiding, and denying Christ to deciding, planning, and, bo- and, and stealing a body under Roman guard in under 40 hours? I'm not buying. I'm not buying. it. There, there, there's no way that they get from, I'm scared to death, I'm about to be arrested. I don't know what's going on to this brazen attempt. Do I believe that fishermen overcame Roman soldiers? I don't. Listen, like we, we had this thing about, you know, oh, modern warfare, we're so much better than. I'm telling you, if you put Navy SEALs in Roman guard with swords against Roman guys in Roman guard with swords, the Navy SEALs would do pretty well because they're Navy SEALs. But I'm telling you, they would have their hands full. These guys were not, these guys were not mall cops. They're not, they're not fooling around. The other thing I, I would ask is, why leave the grave clothes behind? That would take a lot of time in the middle of the night. It makes no sense. It just creates a lot of problems that you don't need. Why, he's already wrapped. Why not just, you know, he's already in a, he's already in a carpet. Why not just take the carpet? It's like, why, why would you do that? It doesn't make any sense. The other thing is this. Does this, and this is one of the things that Morrison says, does this fit with the character of the disciples and what we know about them? It really doesn't. Peter and John and James, these guys were saints. They were, they were men of intense integrity by all accounts. Um, they were they were really great men. They weren't crooks. I mean, you know, it's like they they weren't they weren't fraudsters. They weren't hucksters. They weren't con men. Everything they did was incredibly honest, incredibly compassionate, incredibly loving. Do they seem capable of this kind of fraud? They don't. It doesn't. It doesn't fit. And from the other direction, not, not to be weird about it, but do to the do the disciples really seem like master criminals to you? It's like you know, it's like Peter's a fisherman. He's not. He's not. He's not Danny Ocean. You know, about to break into the Bellagio. He, he's he's a, he's a fisherman. He doesn't have this kind of criminal he's not a criminal mastermind they're not the best con men who ever walked the earth they're not they're just, it's a group of fishermen it just doesn't fit and so and so here's another one why don't when the roman soldiers come and tell the jewish leaders why don't the sanhedrin go to the tomb why not why not go check it out well it's because they believe the roman soldiers is why right and much more harrowing they cared more about their political narrative and damage control than they did about the truth Than they cared about the question wait a minute What if Jesus really is the Son of God? What if he is the Messiah? What if he's right? What if he he actually did rise from the dead? It's like, no, no, we've got to to get spin for the press secretary. It's like they're they're completely burying any idea of the truth or any open question to basically cover themselves here. Okay, so there's one last possibility uh, that I can think of as we go through this, and it's this. Um, Jesus rose from the dead in historical and spiritual fact. It just, it just fits the evidence, guys. There, there really are coherent reasons to, to believe this. So let me just read it again, and just, let's just, just see it. Just see it. So this is Matthew 28. This is the same passage I read before, but it's just so good. I want to read it again. Okay. After the Sabbath, at dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. There was a violent earthquake, for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and, going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning. His clothes were white as snow. The guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. Roman soldiers are good, but angels are better. The angel said to the woman, Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. He is not here. He is risen, just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. And then go quickly and tell his disciples, He has risen from the dead and is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him, now I have told you. So the women hurried away from the tomb afraid yet filled with joy and they ran to tell his disciples and suddenly jesus met them greetings he said they came to him they clasped his feet they worshiped him then jesus said to them do not be afraid go and tell my brothers to go to galilee there they will see me (laughs) so so they're basically you know two kinds of people there are people who can decide things based on incomplete information and then you know there's the, the other thing um so we've gone through this as we've gone through this with every message we focused on two questions the first question is this are there good reasons to believe the resurrection happened? There's some really smart guys in history that say yes to that, and, and you know, I, I'm not fit to be among them, but I, they've convinced me. I, I'm, I'm, I'm with them on that one. It turns out that there are coherent reasons to believe this. The second thing is, what does that mean for my life? So one last question of my litany of questions. And again, this is from Morrison's Who Moved the Stone. In this story, as the events transpire, and this is such a beautiful thought, after Easter, why... Does nobody care about the tomb? Nobody. The Romans don't care about it. The Jewish leaders don't care about it. Disciples don't particularly care about it. I mean, like, you know, nobody cares about the tomb. Why not? Why would they not care about the tomb? If this were me, if I were writing the story just cold, this place would become a shrine. I would charge tickets. There would be, oh, look, look at where the grave clothes lay. Look at where the stuff. Oh, buy a, buy a Jesus, you know, buy a rose again candle. It smells like, smells like springtime. I mean, I would, I, I would be using this as a marketing plan of all marketing plans to get to the thing. It would become a celebrated holy place that people would come to visit. But this doesn't happen. A few weeks later in Pentecost, when Peter stands up in the middle of Jerusalem and gives this amazing message, which basically is this. You killed him, then he popped up out of the grave, and he's risen again, and you need to repent and come back to God. And he's brought back to God, and they go, oh, what should we do? You should become baptized. And three past thousand people say, sure, let's do it. Let's do it. What they could have done, you've got to understand, he was in Jerusalem doing this. Jesus was crucified just outside of Jerusalem. Jerusalem wasn't that big of a place geographically. From where Peter was talking, you could have, gone, you could have walked over to Joseph of Arimathea's tomb and back before supper. It was right over there. It's a 10-minute walk. It's not very far away. Nobody did. Nobody cared. Why not? Why not? They could have put their hands on the stone. <laughs> you know, they could have laid down where Jesus laid down. You know, They didn't do any of this stuff. Why didn't the earliest disciples and the larger circle in Acts focus on the tomb? Here's why. And it's, it's just, it's a compelling reason. It's because they had Jesus himself. Who cares about the stupid tomb? Who cares? Who cares about the great clothes? <laughs> Who cares about the myrrh and aloe? You've got the guy himself walking around, speaking to you, eating fish. This is why. They saw him in the garden. They saw him on the road to Emmaus. They saw him in Galilee. Then in a feat of superhuman strength, he ate a bite of fish and didn't choke to death right there in front of their very eyes, right? He ate fish with them again on the beach. Of course they don't care about the tomb. He actually rose from the dead. And that's the thing that captured their heart. This wasn't a story about, oh, there's this tomb, and we should oh, there's lots of things around the tomb. Like, no, they had Jesus. That's what, captured, that's what captured their hearts. Why would they care about a rock and some old grave clothes when you have the guy? You know, Matthew 28, 10 says this. Then Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. There they will see me. There they will see me. So here's what I want you to do. Go to Galilee <laughs> in your heart, in your spirit, in your mind. If you're already a Christian, do it again just to, just to build up your faith. If you're not a Christian, take it seriously, man. Go to Galilee. Go to the tomb. Look at it. See, see Jesus for yourself. Move past the arguments and considerations and all the things that we do with the mind to aid the spirit, which is great, and just encounter Jesus today, personally, directly. <laughs> and, and, oh, God, just help us open our eyes to see you. Help us see you clearly. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you for this day you've given us, and thank you for the idea that you rose again. Thank you for the idea that it actually happened. Thank you for uh, guys like Frank Morrison, who became convinced and wrote beautiful um, accounts and just wonderful things around this idea to help us understand it even better and to, to build up our faith. Lord, I just thank you for everything that you're doing, and Lord, I pray that you would just speak to us powerfully today.